Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for coming this evening. We have a packed house. Uh, I'm delighted to be the uh, chair of tonight's event. My name is John Van Rien. I'm a professor in the Department of Economics and the director for the Centre for Economic Performance. And I'd like to welcome you to the third Phillips Lecture in the series, sponsored by Economica. Uh, the pre we have these lectures uh, every other year. Um, the first was by uh, Lucas, the second was by Sargent, who won the Nobel Prize uh, last year, I guess 2011. And of course, uh, carrying on with the tradition of Nobel laureates, we have uh, Chris Pisarides, our own colleague here from LSE, who um, won the Nobel in, uh, in 2010 for his work. Um, I don't really need to introduce him, you all know Chris, he is uh, uh, one of the world's leading intellectuals uh, and economists. He holds the, uh, the chair at the, L the LSE. Uh, he has actually been at the LSE since 1976, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic achievement uh, to be here so long and be such a strong influence on the macro group uh, at, the, at the LSE. I should mention that uh, one of the, 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 the times I got to know Chris is as the director of the macro program at, uh, at the Centre for Human Performance for which he's built up that, uh, the work there and has continued very strongly with Francesco Caselli, who is now the, now the director of that program. So Chris has worked in many areas. He's most famous for his pioneering work on search and matching um, and you know, revolutionized the way we think about unemployment. He's gonna talk about that tonight. He's also worked in many other areas to do with structural change, to do with regulation and taxation, always with a rigorous focus on uh, economic theory and intellectual contribution combined with a sharp uh, work and looking at the policy implications of that work as well. And, you know, I'm very pleased to talk about that tonight. So without further ado, over to you, Chris. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for my topic today is um, OECD labor markets in the Great Recession, and I'll tell you in a minute what I'll um, mainly um, focus on, and then we're going to have some, um, some time um, at the end for, for questions, questions and answers. Um, okay, slide number one. I thought I was going to um, give some kind of... Um, just a very quick introductory background on the, the timing of the recession and, and what I'd mainly be talking about, and, and, and that's all it is, but um, I thought that quite unusually for me. In fact, I finished these slides about five days before the presentation time, usually sort of five minutes before, but this time it was five days, and I thought I'd send it, I'd send it to two friends of mine in the, in, in the United States, the American universities, and ask them what they thought, especially things I had about the U.S., well, the main comments that um, they made was about the first bullet point on the first slide, which, <laughs> which made me change it twice. Um, and it's the question whether the financial crisis, whether it's a housing market crisis or whether it's a financial crisis and housing was a victim of, the, of finance. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to move on from that. <laughs> I just throw that, throw that in as a thought, something to think about after the lecture. Uh, what I'm going to talk about mainly is um, 
the employment outcomes in the OECD in 2009 and 2007, and I'm going to compare where labor markets were, especially employment actually, not wages, employment and unemployment, where they were in 2009, and uh, where they've come from in 2007. And then I'll try to apply a very simple framework, I mean, there's no new theory or, or anything like that, like that. Very simple framework to um, evaluate where they are. You are going to see that there are many differences between OECD countries in the way they responded to the recession. And I'm going to ask why by comparing some um, high-profile um, differences across the OECD and um, come up with any conclusions that um, we might have about the operation of labor markets. So first of all, I'm going to begin with an overview of the impact on, uh, of the recession on unemployment, on employment and unemployment. Then I'm going to look at um, general explanations, and then I will compare uh, countries. Okay, now the employment response across the OECD has varied quite a lot. What you see here is the percent change in employment between 2007 and 2009. You can see that uh, Ireland, Spain, Estonia, Iceland, and the United States are the countries that had the biggest falls in employment. Um, even in the United States, there was a 6% fall in employment. Spain, there was a 9% fall in employment, whereas in other countries um, like um, Netherlands, Germany, Luxembourg, Poland, there's actually been an increase in employment between the two years. The red bars, which I hope you see the colors there, the, the average, as you can see, the average for the OECD was just over 2%. For um, Euro, the Eurozone, it was something like 1.7, and the EU, uh, a little bit less. The reason for the difference between EU and Eurozone is really the behavior of Scandinavia, which has been rather better than average. Um, now, now, one very interesting fact is that um, the allocation of the negative shock to um, the labor input, if you like, you know how uh, the total labor input received a negative shock, it went down, but the allocation between employment which is persons employed, and um, hours of work per person vary quite a lot across the uh, OECD. And there are some really notable uh, differences. You know, if you look at the left, Spain, for example, we, we saw the 9% decrease in employment. There's actually been an increase in the number of, work, of, number of hours of work per person by something like 1% uh, during the recession. On the other hand, if you look at the United States, there's been a decrease in employment, a very big decrease in employment, close to 6%, and just over 1% decrease in hours per person. And now if you go to the other end, you will see Germany, which is the most um, sort of high-profile case, where, where there's been a decrease in hours of work per person of something like 3%, but an increase in employment. Um, and then you see Luxembourg, which had an increase in hours of work by about 6%, and an increase in employment by about 3%. And um, I asked someone who's familiar with Luxembourg why, and he said to me, well, they just, well, Eurostat opened two new jobs. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, um, the, the, the change in employment was matched very closely by the change in unemployment, of course it's a rise in unemployment and a fall in employment, so we can almost talk about them interchangeably. 
fall in um, employment and rising unemployment, and that's what I'll be doing really. I mean, I'll show you some data on unemployment, but that's, I'll be switching between one and one and the other. There's nothing fishy going on. You know, it's just sort of people lost their jobs; they remain uh, unemployed. How can I get rid of this? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> What is that red thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but how do I get rid of the pen? <laughs> I don't know. Um, now, this this slide, I'm not going to say very much about this, that, that men have been affected more than um, than women. Just putting this for the colors, so blue for men, pink for women. <laughs> um, but it's, made, it's mainly being... Uh, sort of men and that's because of the industrial structure that you're going to see in a minute and here it is now this here this here I find quite interesting if you if you look at um, uh, some writings on the recession where the job losses have been then people would say oh you know this recession like previous one destroyed industry most of the job losses have been in industry and that's the case both in the eurozone and the OECD that I'm comparing uh, here here, here I'm talking about job, lo job losses, okay? It's, it's a little bit reversed. Maybe I should change it to um, changes in jobs. So the um, positive bars that you see um, is a fall in, in the number of jobs. So in the industry, for example, um, the Eurozone lost um, 0.4% of the, of the population of working age uh, in number of jobs. OECD lost 1% and so on. Construction, as you can see, lost a lot of jobs. Services, on the other hand, gained jobs in, um, in the Eurozone and lost a little bit in the OECD and agriculture had lost in both. Now, and therefore, that's often presented as, a, um, as, as, as destruction of the manufacturing base or whatever. That's, that's wrong, though, because during this time, just like any other time since uh, the uh, 1970s, um, industrial employment has been in decline in these countries. There's a trend decline, whereas service employment has been rising, has been a trend rise. And we need to correct for those trend changes before we can see what the impact of the recession on these jobs uh, was. All this is um, explained here. So what I did was to um, extrapolate employment on the assumption that the trends after 2000 in employment between 2000 and 2007 continued and then compare the extrapolated, the predicted if you like, employment in the absence of a recession with the one that we observe with a recession. And when you do that, you will see that um, most of the job losses have been in services. In other words, what, what we um, um, were observing during that time was um, a trend decline in, in the industrial base, you know, deindustrialization, uh, mainly because of um, uh, technological progress, but also to a very large extent because of the growth of China and other countries in uh, the production of manufacturing goods. Um, the workers who've been losing their jobs in industry have been taking jobs in services which have been creating um, jobs. So, in some ways, one way to the the sort of best way maybe to think about the recession is that there's been a recession that um, um, sort of stopped the job creation in the service sector to absorb the workers who have lost their jobs in industry anyway. Now, and, and even, I mean, what you see on the left is, is the total 
industry and, and then construction, even construction alone as a sector has lost more jobs than industry as a whole. And, and agriculture has been completely immune of any recession. It's the number of jobs there is what you would expect given the decline of agricultural employment that is still taking place across the OECD. Um, okay, now what about unemployment dynamics? Now this is also another interesting thing that you'll see in a, in a minute that I found that I was rather surprised. Um, as I'm sure you know, um, the unemployment could, could increase for one of two reasons. It could increase because more people become unemployed, that's new entry, and, um, or because those who are unemployed remain unemployed for longer periods, the duration. Now usually what we find with the recessions is that on, on, on impact, several people lose their jobs and therefore there's a big inflow into unemployment. And that's the initial cause of the rise in unemployment. But very soon, usually across the industrial countries, um, the, um, those who, who are unemployed find it more difficult to find jobs. They stay unemployed longer. And that's what explains the biggest rise in unemployment, that long rise in, in, in the durations of unemployment. Now, if you look at the current recession, though, the only country that fits that picture that I just described is the only country that did not fit that picture in the past, which is the United States. In the United States, the, if we decompose the rise in unemployment between 2007 and 2010, I extended to 2010 to give more time for the duration to show up in the data, then by far the most important reason for the rise in unemployment are longer durations of those already unemployed, not new unemployed. And that contrasts with every other country that has data on these uh, two things. You know, look at Spain, for example, new entry contributes to 8% new um, duration of unemployment to under 4 Canada, I guess, is the other country, actually, but I, somehow United States and Canada, you think of them as going together. That's why I said only the United States. Um, whereas all the other countries have um, explained with, um, with duration. I mean, look at uh, Germany. No, Germany is not there. Look at the EU. In the EU, durations have actually fallen in the European Union as a whole, whereas new entry has increased, and that's what explains the European uh, Union increase in unemployment. And that I'm going to use this fact a lot later on to explain what's been happening in, in the United States. Okay, I think that... Okay, so now modeling um, employment. So what I've done so far, amazingly I'm on, well on time, on my kind of mental clock, um, what I've done so far is to um, um, describe the main facts of, uh, that um, we see in the labor market, mainly about employment, between uh, on the onset of recession between seven, 2007 and 2009. What I'm going to do next is how am I going to think of those facts, how am I going to interpret them, and finally I'm going to focus on individual countries and make the comparison on countries. So now m modeling employment. I'm going to use the simplest possible modeling framework. It's called eyeball econometrics, uh, which uh, relies on the maximization of profit subject to Cobb-Douglas production functions. 
And if we do that, then of course you're going to get a function that you must have seen many times in your second year, both micro and macro, I guess, Cobb-Douglas production functions. Um, it, what, what you will see is that you can get the, the percentage change in employment, the log change, as a linear function of the um, log change in output and the log change in the cost of employing uh, labor. Now, the question is how do we interpret the current recession? Well, I'm going to interpret the current recession as one where what you might call organizational capital um, has received a big negative shock. Uh, now, the, the organizational capital you can show in the shift um, variable, the A, if you like, in, in the Cobb Douglas production function. It's not necessarily technology, although that variable is usually interpreted as the technology parameter. Uh, but I consider it to be something equivalent. Um, it's something that facilitates the way that um, factors combine to produce output. Now, the... Um, okay, and then I'm going to think of financial intermediation as the organizational capital in the economy as a whole. So you have an economy that has people who want to work, and there is capital stock that is available to work, and then, finance, and, and then there is an organizational capital, a kind of knowledge in that economy that um, brings the two together. And a country that has highly developed financial intermediation system will get more productivity out of the combination of labor and capital because with um, finance you can um, achieve better matches less wasteful employment uh, of the existing capital and um, labor stock. Now, what happens if there is a failure on this financial intermediation? Well, that's equivalent to a negative uh, technology shock, but it's a negative shock to the, the organizational capital, but on Cobb Douglas production function, it will show the same. It's a fall in productivity, it's a fall in output, if you like, at given employment level. So the way I'm interpreting then the, this data that I've shown you is that there is an exogenous fall in output, fall in productivity, if you like. It's a, very, it's a kind of real business cycle type of, of, of interpretation. And because of that fall in output, there is then a decrease in employment and by how much employment falls depends on the cost of labor before and after the recession. Now, another kind of liberal interpretation that I'm giving to this framework is that what I'm going to say is that the, the cost of labor is not just the wage rate, but it's also the institutional um, structure of the economy, it's any frictions that you might have in the labor market, hiring costs, any legal restrictions that you might have on firing, all those you can find shadow costs for all those, shadow prices for all those, and they're included in the cost of employment. So the way I'm going to um, interpret what's been happening in the recession then is the following. There is a negative shock to uh, output, to production, given employment levels. Then employment needs to fall because of that negative shock and by how much it falls depends on the institutional structure of the labor market 
which determines the overall cost of, um, of employing uh, labor. Now, the, um, if the costs of adjusting employment, if all labor market policies and all institutions were the same across all OECD countries, then according to that framework that I just described, I'm sure you can derive it at the back of an envelope, but maybe you don't have envelopes with you, so that's pointless. You could just um, regress the fall in employment, always in percentage terms, it's a log difference, on the fall in GDP, and that would pick up the aggregate shock. And then because the aggregate shock affected the construction sector by more, I'm also putting in the share of the construction sector to pick up the bias nature of the shock, but then if but, but as I said, just to repeat it myself slightly, is that if all the institutional structure of the economy uh, was the same, then you should find exactly the same. You should be able to explain all the response of employment across countries. Okay, all you need to explain the employment response then is the GDP for the share of the construction sector to pick up the bias nature of the shock. And therefore, anything you cannot explain when you're comparing countries must be due to different institutional structures in the labor market. And I've run that, that regression. It's, um, I, haven't run a regre I hadn't run a regression for so long. I was quite impressed by, by the number of statistics that you now get. Last time I ran a regression, you just got an R square and the Durbin Watson statistic. <laughs> now, now there's a Kaike Schwartz, I mean, yeah, Hannah Quinn. <laughs> Quite amazed, <laughs> um, and um, and and you can see that um, that the regression actually fits well. Of course, you know, I mean, the geniality biases and, and and so on and so forth. Small number of observations. I mentioned those a little bit later on, but but it, but it does it does fit quite well. You know, the two variables I have are 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 significant. They explain quite a lot of the variation of uh, employment across countries, and um, and there. It is. Um, well, I just said I have 33 OECD countries in this. Um, they explain quite a lot of the variation in employment that I've shown you. So obviously, the fall in GDP is quite closely related to uh, employment. You know, there are questions about causation given the endogeneity bias, but um, but it works. Um, now, what I'm going to do now is that I'm going to take the residuals from that regression, which is the component of the change in employment that I cannot explain with these two independent variables, and I'm going to compare them across countries and see if I can identify labor market institutions that can explain to me why there are these differences across countries. So here they are. Um, the um, the the way to think about these residuals is that there is an average response of employment across the OECD countries, and any differences you see here are the differences between that average response across the OECD and in the country in question. So if we take the highlighted countries, because those are the countries that I'm going to focus on later on, the first highlighted country is the United States. Yeah. The, the United States, I have a negative fall of Four percent. What that means is that is that in the United States we observe a bigger fall in employment 
as much as 4%. That cannot be explained with the simple framework that I had, that contrary to what we see in the rest of the OECD, we see a bigger fall in employment in the United States. Next is Spain that is highlighted. In Spain, we see only a 2.2 fall in employment that cannot be explained by what we see. Still, there is still a negative uh, component in Spain, in addition to what we have. But what's quite remarkable is that the actual fall in, in Spain was much more than the United States, but the model is quite successful in picking up the fall in, uh, in, in Spanish employment, uh, more successful than it is in the United States. And of course, the reason for that is the construction sector that was much bigger in Spain, and I'm, I'm controlling for the construction sector. Then, the next highlighted country, you cannot actually see it because its bar is so tiny, it's the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is bang in the middle of the OECD. We, we don't need anything else to explain the fall in employment in the United Kingdom, in fact. It's explained by the construction sector and the fall in GDP. And then to the right, the highlighted country, is um, Germany, where we see a positive component to employment. That means that we didn't see the fall in employment in Germany that we would expect to see, given the recession. On contrary, we see something like more than 2% employment, higher employment by something like 2.2% than what you would predict to find in Germany. And of course, Luxembourg is the champion of employment. We, don't, we see 5% more than what we would predict. Uh, that's, it's on the far right. Um, now, we see the same if we look at total hours of work, not just employment. Again, the countries on the left, uh, USA is on the left. Um, Spain, with Spain, actually, in total hours, we, we more or less explain um, the whole change in total hours on the basis of the construction sector and the falling GDP alone. Uh, but if you go on the right, again, you see Germany having a positive component. Um, I, will, I, will, I have a bullet point later on, but perhaps it would surprise you to see Greece and Portugal having a positive component, which means that we see more employment in Greece and Portugal than we will. So in fact, the reason is that the fall in employment there was rather delayed. I mean, if I extend this to 2011, then they will, have, they will come to the left, both countries. And it was delayed because of um, severe employment protection legislation that delayed the um, Set the um, the um, termination, the destruction of jobs. Um, and again, the same goes with unemployment. We see a bigger increase in uh, American, Spanish, and, and United States unemployment, a smaller increase in uh, German unemployment. The United Kingdom is always in the middle. It's always uh, explained by the average in the OECD. Okay, so now that I've seen, I've shown you the framework, I've shown you where all the uh, countries um, uh, fit, how we can think of all the countries, you know, the difference across countries. Let's take individual differences now and um, focus more on um, what's going on. Now, ma major means big here, okay? <laughs> big economies. Um, now, the United States consistently shows how it's having a bigger fall in employment, bigger fall in hours, and bigger rise in unemployment than what we would predict. Germany and Japan, but I'm not going to talk about Japan, but it does 
it's more similar to Germany than the other countries. It experiences a lower fall in employment, a smaller rise in unemployment, and the framework predicts the, the total number of hours of work about right. That's the fact I'm going to use to explain what's going on in Germany. And in Britain, we have the OECD average responses across all the measures. Um, other countries, Spain and also Ireland, Iceland, Israel, have bigger falls in employment, bigger rise in unemployment than predicted, but we can explain total hours of work. Portugal and Greece, as I said, have lower responses up to 2009, but they caught up with the time. And Luxembourg is an outlier because what, what's odd about it actually is that they have very strict labor market regulation in Luxembourg, but they seem to be immune of recessions. <laughs> have Eurostat office to thank for that, I think. <laughs> Um, okay, so let, let's take now the uh, countries individually. First of all, the United States. Now, it's been claimed by some people, Bob Hall in particular, that the initial impact of the recession in the United States was very similar to previous recessions. But in 2009, it deviated a lot from the initial impact of the recession. It experienced a persistence in unemployment, which was unlike previous recessions, and it experienced long-term unemployment for the first time uh, ever. And um, when recovery started coming, it was what they call a jobless recovery in that output was rising, but employment was not rising, which of course means that there's been a rise in labor productivity, um, what some people call the Walmart effect. Um, now, the United States is unique among the OECD in that by 2009, the longer durations of unemployment explain why unemployment remained high, in contrast to the other countries that were still experiencing, experiencing job losses. Um, if I could summarize what needs to be explained in the United States, is that we have to explain a bigger fall in employment and hours. We have to explain a bigger burden of adjustment on employment than on hours per person. And despite that, we have to explain why durations of unemployment have increased and um, the rise in unemployment didn't come from new entry. I'm putting it like that because that the, the, these are the, uh, well, not quite the econometrics, I promise you, but the explanation. I mean, there, what, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to think like a macroeconomist. You are given three facts. What's the framework that can explain those three facts? Here it is. <laughs> what does it all mean? Well, it's the typical response of an economy with employment laws that impose no restrictions on firms, and therefore they give no incentives to firms to hoard labor. But it's an economy that suffers from rigidities on the workers' side in the um, labor market that delay job acceptance. In other words, a combination of <coughs> employment-friendly flexibility in uh, law, but with frictional rigidities in, in job search. So the question is, um, how, how can we, what can we find that is causing that? Well, employment-friendly flexibility is very easy to find because the OECD constructed all the numbers and everything, and, and employment laws in the United States are the most liberal across the OECD. Um, even uh, more liberal than the 
British ones for one time after the Thatcher reforms, Britain looked like it was getting to be more liberal, but in fact the United States is much more liberal. So we don't need to explain very much there. There's almost no restrictions in what employers can do. Now, what about the frictional rigidities in job search? Well, of course, the way to um, find that out, another way of showing that that's what's happening is to look at the beverage curves, the relation between unemployment and vacancies. You couldn't have a lecture without beverage curves, so I found a way of bringing it in. <laughs> You're going to see more than one as well. And um, the, um, I mean, some, some um, economists have been interpreting the United States beverage curve because of what I just described as a breakdown from the past. But in fact, it's not a, um, it's not a breakdown, as I'm going to claim. The, what the United States beverage curve looks like now, when you see it, is a curve that is very reminiscent of the European labor markets in the 1980s uh, recession. And again, that's when you say, why is that the case? Well, again, it's because of an increase in frictions. Your, European labor markets in the 1980s had a lot of frictions. A reform process started after that to reduce the frictions. And because of those frictions, we had some features in their, lab, in their beverage curves that I'll show you in a minute. And now we're seeing those features in the United States beverage curve. And, and, and here it is. The um, good, good data on vacancies in the United States start in, um, in fact, it started in December 2000, but the first observation is not, is not very reliable. Starting with January 2001, we have good um, vacancy and unemployment data, what's known as JOLTS, Job Openings and Labor Turnover. And um, we start with the most um, um, booming, if you like, state in the labor market, very low unemployment, about 4%, and vacancy rate more than 3.5%. Then recession will slide all the way down. And then in, um, in uh, April 2009, if then you see a kind of recovery beginning. You can see job openings coming on, but they're not being taken by the unemployed. Between, between April 2009 and in late 2009, there's been increase in unemployment even, but vacancies going up, and then small reductions in um, unemployment, but at a point further away from the origin. So you could, if you wanted to interpret that as a small shift in the beverage curve out, which means there's been an increase in frictions, or you could interpret it as a long loop where eventually the economy will come back, but then why would you have that loop? Um, so here is the interpretation that traditionally U.S. recoveries are close to the beverage curve. We move up and down a fixed curve, whereas in Europe they exhibit these big loops, which means which we always interpret as having more surge frictions in Europe than in the United States. Um, and if this recovery followed previous one in the U.S., then un U.S. unemployment should be down to about six to seven percent. You can you can see that coming up from here. In fact, if if you draw this loop close to the original curve, unemployment should be about 6%. But it's not. Uh, so it's not falling. Why? Well, here are the plausible causes that are consistent with that. There's been a structural change in the recovery that the jobs created in different locations from the loca locations of those jobs that have been destroyed. 
Now that's always been happening in the United States with movement of jobs from north to south, industrial um, north to um, service south. But the traditional response in the United, United States labor market is labor mobility. But now mobility is substantially down in the United States. It's less than half of what it was uh, before. If we measure it, say, every 10 people during a year, how many would move, if the number was X before, which I can't remember, now the number is X over 2, a little bit less than that. Now, why has labor mobility fallen so much? Well, the most likely cause that, uh, that um, has been debated in the literature is the depressed housing markets. If you cannot sell your house, there is more home ownership now following the big expansion of home ownership in the 2000s. And um, if you cannot sell your house, you don't move. So that's number one reason for that increased rigidity of the labor market. Number two is that there's been an extension of unemployment benefit, which created more disincentives to job acceptance and mobility. With higher replacement, that, and, and the extension has been mainly with um, um, unlimited durations, which are the kind of structure of unemployment benefit that gives the biggest disincentive. And finally, there's been some skill mismatch. The financial crisis made firms cautious about spending on training because there is uncertainty about the future, uh, and therefore th there are shortages of labor in some uh, occupations and um, unemployment in others, which you see in the number of vacancies and um, number of unemployment coexisting. Okay, if you compare with Britain, now you do have to ignore that red bit at the bottom. It's not part of the beverage group. But if you compare it with Britain, United States is in red and Britain in blue. But in fact, since 2001, Britain and the United States use very similar uh, methods of collecting both data, both vacancies and unemployment. So you can make a direct comparison between Britain and the United States. You can actually see the United States having um, more frictions in the labor market than Britain. Um, in fact, what you see in Britain is, is a country that has a very good institutional structure in labor markets, but it's depressed, the labor market. I think I've mentioned this here. Because following the, the reforms in the British labor market in the 1980s and 1990s, the structure of the labor market is very similar to the United States in that there aren't many restrictions in legislation and, and all that. But um, the reaction to the recession is very different. In, 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 in Britain, if you look at the British beverage curve, it's exhibiting features of a conventional depressed labor market, whereas the United States is exhibiting features of a labor market that has structural problems. Um, the, um, okay, I'll, I'll show you that again. And, and there it is. You see, like, once we got down to this point, In recession, and that was that happened in um, the end of that line is April 2009 in both countries. Um, the, the British labour market just stopped there. There is no job creation. You know the economy is depressed, but there are no structural problems as such. Whereas in the United States, there is some job creation, but jobs are not being taken up because of the structure or because of the structural problems that you have in the economy that I mentioned before. And therefore, what lessons we can draw is that in Britain there isn't much that can be done with the labor market policy to improve the labor market. Institutions seem to function well. The problem is the macro environment. Whereas in the United States, there is evidence that extending the unemployment insurance in, in recession without an active component, 
of the type that the Scandinavians have, and you're going to see a little bit of that later on, um, it's dangerous for the duration of unemployment. And if we're going to return to a traditional US-style flexibility in the labor market, we need to do one of two things in, um, in the way the Social Security is designed, which is either restrict the duration or introduce active policy to offset the long durations, uh, which is done in Scandinavia, as I mentioned. And second, you have to fix the labor market to bring back uh, mobility of labor. Without those two, the United States is not, is not going to recover. The labor market is not going to recover uh, in the way that it used to uh, before. Okay, let's now compare with Germany, because here is where you're going to see some big contrast. Now, the blue bars here show the change in GDP in the three uh, countries, United States, Britain, and Germany. Remember that Britain is in the middle of the OECD, so it's a good comparison between the two. The red bars show the, um, the change in the total labor input. So what you see is more or less similar fall in GDP, about 4%. In fact, almost exactly the same in Germany and the United States, a little bit more in Britain. But then the big contrast is what you see in the fall in employment. United States minus, oh, sorry, in total labor input. United States just over 7%, Britain just over 3%, in Germany less than 1%. So again, the question is why? I've already showed you the comparison between Britain and the United States, and now I'm going to focus on, on Germany. Um, now, if we split the labor input between hours and persons, then you see here the big change. The blue is hours per worker, and they've gone down Britain and the United States almost exactly the same, just under 2%. Germany, just over 2%, but not a big difference. The big difference is in persons employed. United States down by 6, Britain by 2, Germany up by 2. So why is employment increasing in Germany and not in the other countries, despite the fall in GDP? Um, okay, these are the striking facts that I described, so we don't need to dwell on them. Um, okay, well, first, before we go there, you might say um, something else has to give somewhere. You know, you cannot have the same fall in GDP, different falls in employment, and nothing else changing elsewhere. And of course, what's, what's the, the shock absorber, if you like, as I described it here, is productivity that the main adjustment that counterbalanced the employment changes is changes in productivity. In the United States, there's been a big increase in, uh, in, in productivity, especially in services. That's the Walmart effect. In Germany, there's been a big fall in productivity across the board. In Britain, there's been a smaller fall in productivity as well. Um, okay, here are the reasons. Now, Germany liberalizes labor markets in the 2000s, and the, and the liberalization liberalizing reforms have been very similar to the British reforms of two decades earlier. They are known as the Hartz 1 to 4 reforms. The economy became more business friendly, less restrictions on labor regulation, lower duration of benefits to the unemployed, increased active spending, a little bit more than Britain actually there, and, and uh, unemployment benefit received conditional on strict search and work criteria, which uh, has also happened here when the switch from unemployment benefit to the job seeker allowance. Um, 
Now, the main difference between um, Germany and the other two, though, you know, you might say, well, why didn't Germany behave in exactly the same way as Britain in that case? Well, many people are saying it's because of the industrial structure, because Germany has been less reliant on, on the financial sector, there has more export demand from Asia, which continued, and therefore that's the difference. In fact, that's not true, because if that were the reason, then the GDP fall have, should have been very different, not employment, but GDP. But in fact, the GDP hasn't been very different before. The differences are only in the labor market. The main difference, if you look at labor market policies, is that Germany had in place a very generous system of wage subsidies and other active labor market policies, whereas Britain and the United States didn't. And what are those generous systems? Here they are, I call them policy successes, but you might uh, question it later on. What are those um, differences? Well, the active policies that Germany put in place after 2005 were, first of all, training for the workers, both short-term training, which amounted to how to apply for jobs, how to present yourselves, how to put a tie on when you go for interviews, that kind of thing, and longer-term training, which is uh, the acquisition of skill. Now, those who studied training programs, you know, Heckman and, um, and his disciples mainly, say that the first one is probably more effective training than, than the second, how to present yourself. Anyway, Germany also had targeted wage subsidies, targeted mainly to the unemployed and to low-income groups. It has startup subsidies for new businesses, which is support of the business for nine months. Um, so for nine months, if an unemployed worker started a business, then that worker continued collecting the benefit of support for his business for nine months, plus some extra money to pay for his social security contributions. And he had job creation schemes in the public sector, which as you know, is very different from what's been happening here. Now, what about the targeted wage subsidies? What form did they take? Well, they were given to employers and they cover 50% of the wage for 12 months. There is an extension for another 12 months, what they call the protection period. But they are tailored mainly to the unemployed and to disadvantaged groups. They mainly get, it's, it's only when the employer hires an unemployed person that he gets the subsidy. Now, now there have been evaluation studies of these policies, and they found that the programs are effective in getting the unemployed back to work, especially the long-term unemployed. Um, they probably had no, had no effect on the re-employment probabilities in non-subsidized employment. Now, this second bullet point I have to mention is the one that is always mentioned by, by microeconometricians who do evaluation studies. Um, and they are right, of course. And you can, if you don't believe me, you can go to UCL and ask them. There. That's what they all do very well. Um, and what they find is that um, although the um, re-employment probability to a job that is subsidized increases when you subsidize the job, if that worker were to lose his job in the subsidized, uh, in the subsidized employer, then he wouldn't have a better chance of getting a job in the open labor market. Uh, that doesn't worry me too much. I mean, usually, People who work on evaluation studies say, therefore, you shouldn't um, subsidize jobs. But it doesn't worry me because look at what's happening now. It's like we're saying when the, 
It's like we're saying, if these workers now lost their jobs next year, then the year after they wouldn't be able to find jobs faster than they would have found before. Well, why does it matter if, if, they, if they're being kept employed during the recession and then hopefully the economy will recover by then, there will be more job creation and their chances of getting a job will be higher anyway. So that's the sort of standard response, a response that you could have to that. And finally, what the, uh, Germany experiences is that these measures have actually paid off fiscally. In other words, the government made money out of these measures because of the saving of unemployment benefit and the revenue from social security contributions from the people who got the jobs, right? Taxes, in other words, increased. Okay, and here, of course, there had to be a beverage curve, a German beverage curve to show you how the measures worked. Recovery from 2005 to 2006 following the reforms, and you can see we're moving up the beverage curve, but, but the year that um, the reforms all actually had a big effect on the labor market was beginning in January 2007 up to the Lehman collapse. You see the beverage curve shifting in, which means that the structural problems of the economy were falling all the time uh, because of these subsidies and these active measures. Lehman comes in September 2008, the economy goes into recession, but not a much impact. This movement yeah. is a typical recessionary movement, but it's in a different and much more favorable beverage curve than before. So what you see in Germany is two beverage curves with the shift taking place between 2007 and 2008, uh, following these um, reforms. An example of an economy that became more flexible in 2007, but crucially, it became more flexible on the employment side without increasing the frictions on the worker side, which is what the United States economy has suffered from. Um, so the evaluation that we can have from this is that unrestricted labor markets like the United States and the United Kingdom can give it rise to big increases in unemployment recession, long-term unemployment builds up, especially if benefits are of long duration, as in the United States. The German example shows that the wage and startup subsidies can mitigate the impact of recession on employment. I think there's one other thing I wanted to say. Okay, is that a policy that you would recommend? Well, you do have to remember what I said about productivity, that the German policy is good because it checks the growth of structural unemployment. You know, it keeps people in work in recession, uh, but productivity falls. Now, is this uh, bad for recession? Yes, is it good? That's something that you can, um, as, as a policymaker, you have to decide would you give up productivity gains to keep people in work in, in recession. I won't say who told me, but a very senior um, civil servant policymaker in, in Britain he said to me, well, I'm not sure I would prefer to lose so much productivity to keep the people employed. Maybe there are future gains from uh, the higher productivity than um, from a foreign employment. I'm not convinced by that. I just mentioned that there are people who take a different view. But what I hope you've seen is that um, it could make a lot of difference on how you design these policies in the response of uh, employment to um, a foreign GDP. Now, I'm, I'm running out of time and I'm going to stop um, for, for questions. I did have loads on Spain. You can, I'm going to keep Spain in... Uh, in here so you can read, so this is the end. <laughs> so, uh, thanks very much, Chris, for an excellent, uh, an excellent talk. We have about uh, 20 minutes for questions.
questions. Could I ask you um, to put your hands up if you want questions and also to say who you are when you are asking the question so we know who we're talking to. So who, uh, who would like to, uh, to kick off? There's a roving mic around. You could ask questions about China too if you like. Okay, there's a question up there. Okay, thank you very much. My name is uh, Feng Xue Bao. I'm, uh, I was a student of international political economy. My question is, uh, uh, you know, since the last uh, year, the conservative government in UK uh, introduced uh, a, a tougher rule over the immigration. You know, there's a uh, few uh, non-EU uh, citizens could come to this country to work here, to stay here. Right. What do you think this, uh, this policy change, the, the long-term impact of this policy change on the UK employment market? So thank you. Um, well, I mean, you can think of, imm of, of immigration as, um, as labor mobility and imposing restrictions on, uh, on, on immigration would reduce labor mobility um, internationally, obviously, yes. So a reduction in labor mobility would mean less good um, match between jobs and workers because if you have a bigger market to choose from, you would be able to achieve a better match and that should show up as lower productivity. So the productivity of, of labor and, and by extension therefore investment and growth should be affected by restrictions on, on migration. Um, now that's something that you can derive from the kind of framework I've, I've given you. You know, you are, you are imposing more frictions in, um, in, in labor markets and therefore productivity should go down. To um, to, to my surprise, actually, I was recently at a, a meeting which was attended by top businesses of, of multinationals, and they were asked, what's one thing that the government can do for you to increase your productivity and increase your employment levels? And they all unanimously said, remove the restrictions on international immigration, remove visa restrictions and, uh, and, and other restrictions that, uh, you, that you might have, like... Uh, you know, transferable pensions, for example, that you cannot transfer them from one country to the other. So, so immigration, even if you listen to the international immigration, even if you listen to the practitioners, they will say that's extremely important in um, their employment decisions and their productivity, expected future productivity trends. Being very shy, unusually shy today. <laughs> well, I can, I can, I, I can ask. I'd like to ask a question then. If, uh, oh, is this someone? Okay, yes, here. It's a bit because I'm, I'm from Spain, and I'd like you to explain, summarize at least, uh, what about the response of Spain? <laughs> I know if it's possible. Uh, no, it's. Uh, <laughs> What, 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 what Spain, if, if, if you look at all the data on Spain, then obviously the construction sector explains a lot, but it cannot explain everything as I've shown you. So there must be something else that explains what's wrong in Spain, you know, why is there this failure? And, and, and what I was trying to do here was to, to take one possible explanation after another, and then you can dismiss them all except for the dual structure of, uh, the dual contract, contractual structure that you have in the labor market. One said, of the labor market is employed under very 
strictly regulated contracts, and the other one, um, contracts that are not strictly regulated, but there is some regulation there. And, uh, and you can show even in theory, some Spanish economists have used this framework I've shown here, the frictional framework, to show that you're going to get bigger volatility in employment when you have the dual structure. Bigger volatility means that in recession, unemployment will increase by more, and then when recovery comes, it will go down quickly by, by, by more than in other countries. Um, now, they've been, the reason that this, they've been um, some reforms in Spain, of course, in the spirit of 2010, I mean, with great difficulty because unions are resisting the reforms that are su suggested because they're benefiting from the strict regulation of the regular jobs. There have been some reforms, and they are set in the right direction, but they haven't broken this dual structure uh, in, contract, in, in, the, in the labor contracts. And I think until they break this structure, you don't even have to liberalize very much the um, regular jobs, but break them. You know, say anyone taken on has to go into a regular contract. You know, even if you say that, it will have a positive impact on uh, employment in Spain. So my. So my two reforms that I recommended to the, to the, at the lecture I gave in Spain recently, and it was reported quite widely, is, is one abolished. I can't remember what the other one was actually. What was it? Is, is that you have to get rid of the dualism? And um, oh yeah, this, this one down here. The um, the um, the, 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 union, the union agreements, the, the, the structure of union and collective bargaining in Spain is, is the worst possible that you could have in labor markets of, of what should come first in union agreements and, and what's second. Br Britain used to have that, in fact, in the 1980s as well, and, um, and it abolished it in the late 80s with lots of riots and demonstrations, but it was abolished and it was not reintroduced by the Labour government that followed, so it must have been a good reform, right? Tony Blair said, so it must have been good. Reveal preference. <laughs> yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Edward Larkin. I'm a master's student from the U.S. And I read a kind of influential ebook by two MIT economists last year, and the title was Race Against the Machine, and its thesis was that especially in the developed world, Part of the reason you have a jobless um, recovery or jobless recovery, especially in the U.S., is uh, that technology is destroying way more jobs than it's creating now. That used to not be true. That was an argument made, you know, back in the day of John Maynard Keynes, but that it actually is true now. Um, so I was I was curious what you actually what you thought about that thesis and whether you agree with it or disagree. This is the Brynjolfsson McPhee thesis. Yeah, I I I I don't I don't agree with that actually. The uh, I mean, technology, t technology has always destroyed jobs. In fact, even the rate of destruction now is one of the fastest that, that we've seen before. I mean, it's destroying jobs because, because jobs are, are always moving to lower labor cost uh, countries, partly, but also because there is a limit to how much manufacturing goods you can consume, which, which is what the, the, most of the technological advances are, are taking place. Now, 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 the difference now is that is that there are technological improvements in the service sector as well, where, where again you you would expect to uh, see some jobs being destroyed in these sectors that are affected. But the the, the thing is that the, there are still many many labour-intensive sectors that that are creating and, and could be creating more jobs uh, 
um, because technology makes everyone wealthier and if you have more money you increase your demand for those labor services and um, that way you create jobs to, to serve them and, and if you look at job creation in the United States over the last uh, 15 years the sector that created most jobs is health and is mainly health care not medical you know n n nurses and, uh, and and child care people you know you basically marketize all the uh, all these things that you used to do at home you know like looking after elderly um, parents and, and young children and so on the other sector has created a lot of jobs is education because young people stay in school longer and um, and business services but but a lot of the job creation in business services is, is mainly um, offshoring services that were being done before in uh, other jobs the, the net creators are, are health and education and there's still scope to create there a lot now now the United States is is um, is way ahead of Europe in uh, in that respect in that in that job creation I mean Britain is sort of catching up a little bit but not very much so I can't see how you know and, and it's, it's not new technology that is creating those jobs is the, it's the demand is the is what those who benefit from new technology spend on on these services and that should continue I, I think in fact actually the where where the United States is failing, and that came across quite a lot in, um, in, the, in you know when this meeting that I mentioned um, a minute ago is it, it's it's failing in two things. One of them is that um, it's failing in the in the um, in the provision of uh, goods in, in restructuring the supply of goods and services to the changes in the age structure of the population. Because you have an aging population, you know the, the baby boom is uh, is retiring, and there hasn't been a, as much restructuring the provision of um, services and goods for these people. You know, of course, you, you you do have the golf courses in Florida, but it's not enough. You know, to, uh, so more more needs to be done there to create uh, more jobs. You know, for their needs, and and partly the health, the increasing health jobs because of that. And then and then the other thing that the um, that uh, United States companies haven't been able to um, do very effectively yet, and and that's what that's really what I meant by organizational capital. They, they haven't been able to um, to find out how to accommodate the people who stay uh, post retirement, who don't retire because you don't have retirement anymore, and accommodate new entry from young people leaving school as well. Youths, in fact, are having a very bad time in the United States for the first time. They, the companies are not structured in a way that would accommodate them together with the older um, people who stay on the post-65 year olds. And um, and at the same time, the whole um, idea and uh, design and what you should be doing is thinking of baby boomers and is ignoring the new young people coming there. So I wouldn't like to be young in the United States right now. <laughs> Chris, can I, can I ask, just going back to this really striking fact about the structural search frictions in the US, which you use as one of the yeah. explanations for why unemployment's risen so quickly, and you, you put it down to two problems. One is the lengthening of unemployment insurance durations with the failure to accompany that with active search, and the other was the housing market. Yeah. So, 
Two, two questions on that. One is that I, I thought this extension of unemployment insurance typically happened during most US recessions. So is this recession different and it's been extended by law? And secondly, I thought Hank Farber had a pushback on this housing market story, and that was if you looked at the unemployment experience of people renting and owner occupiers, <coughs> that unemployment had risen to a similar extent for both of those groups during, during the current recession of the US. So he was mm -hmm. more skeptical about this housing market story. Yeah. Well, well, the um, no, no, in the first one, I don't think the, the coverage of unemployment insurance in the United States and the extension, I thought it was new, it was unprecedented in, in this recession. You wouldn't expect Bush to do it something like that in 2002 recession. That was a pretty minor recession. <laughs> well, no, it was quite, no, it was bigger in the United States, the increase by, bigger than here anyway. No, I, thi no, I think the, the social security policy is, um, is, is new in that. Respect now, now, now the housing market is it, it's more difficult. You see, remember that I'm a, I'm a macroeconomist. I, I don't believe in this little splitting and what particular groups do and all that. I mean, the the, the point actually, the, the important point actually is what we see as outcome that that labor mobility has fallen a lot. It's the lowest we've ever seen in the United States, and, and not only that, it's fallen by as I mentioned by half. I I, I do remember the numbers I was. I was given. He said, you know, every say if you take um, a two or three year period, for every ten workers, five of them. Uh, sorry, for every I don't know ten workers, maybe five of them would move. Now only two are moving. You know that kind of statistics. So, the, so the question is, why would mobility fall by by so much? And, and the housing market seemed to be a plausible e explanation. Um, for me, but I don't know. I mean, did he also look at how whether the people in rental accommodation moved as much as the uh, owners occupiers, or did they find that the, that the rented ones don't move either? Well, I, I think it was. It, it looked. It looked surprisingly similar. Yeah. Actually. But um, other. Oh yes, up there. Sorry. Hi, my name is Emily. I'm a master's student here at LSE. And I'm wondering about, you mentioned the uh, labor mobility issues in dealing with some of these mismatch uh, in unemployment and, but also job openings. And I'm wondering about the role of public educational institutions and training. I mean, you mentioned it briefly, but I was wondering if you could expand on that a bit. Well, the, um, uh, they, 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 they have a very important role to play in, um, in say directing people to the new type of jobs that um, that, that are being opened, you know, but, uh, public education. He, he, here, in fact, I have another another comment to make about um, young people and why they are not being absorbed into jobs in the United States, which I also learned from practitioners rather than uh, economic research, which is that that public institutions, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, have not adapted at all to the new type of job that is being opened now. I mentioned that the new type of job is, is mainly in, in healthcare, education, and services. And the training that um, they're given is still geared to the old-fashioned kind of industry job, which is, you know, was considered the sort of proper job, you know, with Technology and computers and all that. Whereas most people don't use computers in their work; they use computers in their leisure time. You know, the ones that get the job. So there's a complaint that the um, 
school leavers that come out um, into the labor market, they are not prepared to take the um, new type of jobs that, are, that open up. And companies don't want to train them because there is uncertainty about how long uh, they will be able to, uh, to keep them. And in fact, I even, um, I even saw demands for, uh, for company executives to go into high schools and tell them, uh, look at their curriculum and give them input into what type of education uh, to give. And when I asked them what, at what level in schooling, it was always secondary school that they complained about. The secondary school education is, is not geared to what labor market is <coughs> in now. There's a question at the back, gentlemen. Thank you. <coughs> Nitin Parshotem, retired local government officer. Just would like to take you back to your conversation with the civil servant um, that you refer to. And um, in doing so, I noted the support from the German government for the, if I can call it, the agility of the labor market through training, retraining, and upskilling measures, and Britain's reticence um, to go down that road. And I think you said that the difference is that uh, the civil servants in the UK are reluctant um, to give up productivity gains. Um, if they were to go down that road. I'm just wondering whether, what your view is whether in the recession, when you've got, if I can call it, automatic stabilizers um, in the movement of employment rates that can be put in place like Germany has done, uh, when you've got that policy option, why that may not be taken up uh, by a country in order to stabilize uh, the workforce and therefore increase the well-being index of the local people. Thank you. Well, I mean, as I mentioned, the, um, you, could, you could be doing that. And in fact, the most interesting, perhaps most surprising thing that I found by looking at the German studies is that the programs paid fiscally. I mean, the government was better off at the end of it. In, in the beginning, of course, you had to put up the money to uh, do it, but you know, one, two years into the program, when those employees started paying their taxes, um, the government was actually better off. So, so the fiscal cost is not an issue if you work on a, say, three-year horizon. The only issue that remains is whether you should, um, um, if you like, artificially keep employment high at the cost of um, productivity gains. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. I, I, I think you know, given what recessions are doing to the unemployed, the disenfranchising, the loss of morale, uh, loss of skill and all that, I think there are actually long-term benefits from keeping uh, workers in work because when the economy recovers, then you can more quickly uh, benefit the labor market from that recovery. But you might, you might remember in, um, in the middle 1980s, the economy started the, the economy, GDP, started recovering around 1983. The labor market didn't recover until, didn't start recovering until 86, 87. You know, there was a three-year delay. In that three-year delay, you could put to uh, the long-term unemployment that built up in the um, initial impact of the recession between 81 and, uh, between 80 and 83. It, I mean, in my view, it's more important to avoid that than um, 
make sure that uh, there is no productivity dip in, in recession, yes. Because you can make up for the productivity loss when uh, recovery comes uh, for, for other reasons. But I mentioned it because there is that, um, that belief amongst uh, senior civil servants, in fact, that, that uh, losing these productivity gains would be bad for uh, the export performance of the country and um, you know, for international competitiveness. And um, there are also severe doubts expressed here, actually, that I don't know. I'm not sure why, because the policy has never been tried. But there are severe doubt, doubts about the effectiveness of uh, wage subsidies, of targeted wage subsidies. That's why I emphasized, I double emphasize this here. But, but, but I, 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 I talked to people involved with policy at the highest level in the civil service side, not, not the political side. And they did say, but these subsidies will not work, blah, blah, but, but they work in Germany, so I don't know. One last question for a very patient gentleman there. Um, hi, yeah. Um, my name is John Muir. I work for Islington Council. My question is one about um, scale. Um, the, the current um, coalition government cancelled the Future Jobs Fund, but have recently um, set up a billion pound youth contract um, in the UK. What I'm interested in is that, that will see wage subsidies in the region of about £2,300 for, for employers that take on young people. Do you think that in terms of the, the work that's been done, done in Germany on similar, similar programmes, how does that compare? And do you think that's sufficient to, to get the buy-in um, to address youth unemployment in the UK? Well, well in Germany, the, the subsidy is 50% of, of the wage cost. And, um, and that's what's been... Uh, Effective. I don't know. I mean, like, and where they are more effective is is at low wages. So, you know, maybe not half of the minimum wage because the minimum wage is the absolute minimum, but something like sixty to seventy percent of the minimum wage would be equivalent to what's had this big effect on Germany. So I don't know. I don't know if the the figure you mentioned is for. Is it per year? Is it for the first year? Which, how much was it? Two thousand pound. Two thousand three hundred. How much is the minimum annual minimum Six wage? Fifteen. No, over the year. Over the year. Okay. <laughs> the average. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where you can. Okay, I think we are, we are five minutes over time, so I, I suggest we continue this conversation in the atrium where there's uh, drinks and nibbles. And it just leaves me to thank once again Chris for an excellent talk, and uh, thank you all for coming.